0: Welcome to this episode of the award winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the myths of Columbus and American exceptionalism that we cling to and turn our gaze to some of the less understood but more accurate and important aspects of our collective history. Clips today are from the Native Opinion Podcast, Vox, Let's Talk Native, a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray, The Katie Halper Show, backstory, loud and clear, and some more news from Cracked.
1: Here are five things that you can keep in mind uh, the next time we get close to this holiday again. Number one, highlight the historical and contemporary contributions Indigenous people have made and continue to make in society, adopting Indigenous Peoples Day is an opportunity to celebrate and honor the histories, cultures, contributions, and resilience of contemporary Native peoples. And we did that earlier by playing the piece on Eloise Cobal for you folks. Mm -hmm. Number two, non-Natives may push back against campaigns that center the abolishment of Columbus Day. While abolishing Columbus Day is crucial to the legislation, more support is garnered when the movement centers the celebration of diverse indigenous peoples across the globe. Number three, most non-natives were taught a romantic narrative about Christopher Columbus that omits the atrocities he committed against many different indigenous groups. It's crucial to educate non-natives about the true history of Christopher Columbus, such as presenting firsthand accounts from Columbus's journal. Now that's what John's about to do, and that's a good thing. With this, non-natives will become aware that celebrating Columbus Day contributes to the erasure of indigenous peoples' trauma and history. Number four, make the issues of Christopher Columbus contemporary. Due to a lack of knowledge about Native people and history, non-natives underestimate the extent to which past atrocities still affect Native people today. Educate non-natives about the legacy of colonialism, which has devastated indigenous communities historically and continues to negatively impact them today. And we we, we try to do this on a regular basis on this show all year long. <laughs> um, number five, replacing Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day is not in opposition to Italian-Americans. Instead, it is a direct opposition to the genocidal colonizer that does not positively represent Italian heritage. Additionally, there are many other Italians and Italian Americans who could be celebrated instead of Christopher Columbus. See Italian Americans who fought for justice, for example, of Italian Americans to celebrate and Goodbye Columbus Day, why Italian Americans deserve a better holiday, or an open letter to Italian-Americans on Columbus Day for an Italian-American perspective on why Columbus Day should be abolished.
2: Christopher Columbus is all over America. There are statues in his honor, streets and cities are named after him. He's got his own national holiday, complete with parades. For centuries, Columbus has been celebrated as the brave explorer who discovered the new world.
3: We celebrate Columbus Day, the anniversary of that day in 1492, when Columbus first sighted the land of the new world, America.
2: But Columbus never even set foot on North American soil. His four voyages brought him to the modern-day Caribbean islands, Central and South America, but never to the country where more than 50 cities, towns, and counties bear his name. We rarely hear about the other explorers who actually landed in the US just a couple decades after Columbus. So how did a man who never even set foot in North America end up with a national holiday and a permanent place in American mythology? Columbus and his arrival in the Americas is mostly introduced to kids through books, songs, or cartoons like this one.
3: I will discover a shortcut to India and bring back some of the great wealth I find there. And I can do it, for I know the world is round.
2: One of the many problems with cartoons like this one is that it taught a lot of wrong information. Children were told that Columbus defied conventional wisdom and proved the world was round. But at the time, people already knew the Earth was round. Columbus actually claimed the world was smaller than predicted, and he was wrong. Children were also told that Columbus's voyages to the inhabited islands in the Americas were peaceful.
3: The people Columbus called Indians were very friendly, and they gave Columbus and his men many gifts.
2: But they don't mention that Columbus and his men were responsible for the mass deaths of native people A friar who lived on the islands Columbus reached and experienced the brutality of the conquest wrote about it. He wrote, They forced their way into settlements, slaughtering small children, old men, and pregnant women. These details have been kept out of most textbooks from the beginning, allowing Columbus to become an American icon. The idealized version of Columbus is as old as the United States. It all began during the War of Independence, when the U.S. fought the British. The new nation needed a rebellious non-British symbol, and they found one in Columbus. Once the U.S. won independence, streets and cities were named after him. Columbus's iconic status was further cemented in 1828, when Washington Irving published a biography glorifying him. He described him as brave, heroic, and a genius, but he neglected to mention his brutal treatment of indigenous people. But Columbus's real big break came in the late 1800s, When the country he'd never visited started experiencing some massive changes. Italian immigrants were arriving in the United States in big numbers, and they faced harsh discrimination. They were treated as perpetual foreigners and restricted to manual labor. Their Catholic beliefs opened the door for even more discrimination. So they embraced Columbus. After all, he was Italian and Catholic and already admired so he quickly became an icon for Italian immigrants who argued that they, too, belonged in America. On the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival, in 1892, Columbus Day was first brought into the school system. Schools held celebrations, and students pledged allegiance to the flag for the first time, associating Columbus with patriotism in classrooms across America. A year later, Columbus became the theme of the World Expo in Chicago, branding him America's hero around the world. As Columbus and his legend became further embedded in American culture, so did the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic social club founded by Italian immigrants. By 1937, the Knights of Columbus had gained enough influence to convince President Roosevelt to proclaim Columbus Day a federal holiday. But not everyone wanted to celebrate Columbus. While the myth of Columbus had been developing throughout history, Native Americans in the U.S. had been dealing with destruction and discrimination for centuries at the hands of all the European settlers that followed Columbus. But in the 60s, things started changing in America. As the civil rights movement demanded change, Native rights became a part of the conversation.
4: We've asked the government for hundreds of years to do things for our people or with our our people. The government has only compromised, only given us token issues to deal with. We're here today as living factors of the problem that are are still existing.
2: Historians started re-examining Columbus and his story, correcting the myth and including the missing historical facts. As revelations about Columbus have become mainstream, some people have rejected the holiday, as well as the man and the legacy behind it. Today, cities around the U.S. are opting out of celebrating Columbus Day, In some cities, they are choosing to celebrate Indigenous Peoples' Day instead. At the same time, more than half of Americans think celebrating Columbus Day is a good idea, according to a poll commissioned by the Knights of Columbus. Most countries are formed with the help of myths and heroes to forge a sense of unity and belonging. It's human nature. But as the myth of Columbus is confronted with brutal historical facts, the U.S. will have to decide which myths are worth keeping and which ones to discard.
5: These are the words of Christopher Columbus, written by his own hand about the people he encountered as a result of his famed voyages. Not the words of a brave hero or righteous explorer, but a merciless marauding tyrant. Rather than continuing to miss the lies, and embellishments of this man, let's let his own words and the words of his contemporaries tell the real story. We will quote Columbus, Cite historical accounts and offer the observations of a bishop serving in the settlements established by Columbus. The expedition of Columbus was a failure. He did not reach the eastern regions of Asia. He did not chart a new maritime route for trade to the East Indies. Oh yeah. And the people he encountered on the islands he ran into were not Indians. He miscalculated the size of the planet by almost half. And it would be later European navigators who would establish that the land Columbus came upon was not actually Asia, but rather a vast populated world of islands and continents previously unknown to Europe. This failure had consequences, as did Columbus's reports back to the Spanish crown of an abundance of natives for slaves, rivers of gold, and a land of riches. There was actually very little gold and other riches that could be delivered to Spain for sponsoring Columbus's voyages and certainly no access to trade with the East. Out of desperation, Columbus relied completely on slavery to justify his settlements and voyages. Indeed, these peaceful, generous people were subjugated and enslaved, and the cruelty is well documented. In Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, Zinn cites the journals of Columbus and others under his command and the writings of Bartolome de las Casas, a former slave owner who became a priest and the Bishop of Chiapas. Las Casas wrote, such inhumanities and barbarism were committed in my sight as no ages can parallel. My eyes have seen these acts so foreign to human nature that I now tremble as I write. Columbus was greeted by the Arawak. They offered help to the voyagers, including food and hospitality. They farmed corn, yams, cassava, and cotton. They wove fabric, but had no work animals or large land mammals for game. They had no iron, but some wore jewelry, including small amounts of gold. This would have devastating consequences. Las Casas wrote, Endless testimonies proved the mild and pacific temperament of the natives. But our work was to exasperate, ravage, kill, mangle, and destroy The admiral, it is true, was blind as those that came after him and was so anxious to please the king that he committed irreparable crimes against the Indians. Native people were enslaved for service in their own homeland and others were shipped back to Spain. Thousands were gathered for the first transatlantic slave trade. Hundreds would die on each of these journeys while millions would die enslaved on their own lands. Las Casas documented these conditions. He wrote of native people forced to work in gold mines to complete exhaustion and death. Those who opposed were beheaded or brutally disfigured. He wrote, they suffered and died in the mines and other labors in desperate silence, knowing not a soul in the world to whom they could run for help. In some provinces, all persons over the age of 14 had to fill a thimble with gold dust every three months. They would have copper shackles bound to their necks as proof of compliance. Those who could not fulfill this obligation would have their hands cut off and strung around their necks while they bled to death. Over 10,000 died handless. But slavery was not limited to gold production. The rape culture of Europe had an immediate effect One of Columbus's captains wrote, I captured a beautiful woman whom the Lord Admiral gave to me. And having taken her into my cabin, I conceived desire to take pleasure. But she did not want it and treated me with her fingernails in such a manner that I wished I had never begun. But seeing that, I took a rope and I thrashed her well. She raised such unheard of screams that you would not have believed your ears. Finally, we came to an agreement in such a manner that I can tell you that she seemed to have it brought up in a school of harlots. Sex slaves were not just a means to compensate his crew. Columbus shipped young girls back to Spain as well. Columbus wrote, A hundred Castellanos are easily obtained for a woman, and there are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those from nine to 10 are now in demand. Las Casas tells how the conceit of the Spaniards grew every day. Total control led to unimaginable cruelty and exploitation. Some refused to walk, forcing native people to carry them on their backs or in hammocks. Las Casas wrote, They had Indians carry large leaves to shade them from the sun and others to fan them with goose wings. The Spaniards, Las Casas wrote, thought nothing of knifing Indians by the 10s or 20s and of cutting slices off them to test the sharpness of their blades. Columbus and the Spaniards brought war dogs to the Caribbean as weapons against the natives. In the early years of Columbus's reign, there were butcher shops throughout the islands where Indian bodies were sold as dog food. Live babies were fed to the war dogs for sport and for entertainment, sometimes in front of their horrified parents. In two years' time, approximately 250,000 Indians were dead on Haiti. Many of these deaths included mass suicides or mothers killing their babies to avoid the horrors of a life and death of persecution. Bartolome de las Casas wrote, when he arrived in Hispaniola in 1508, there were 60,000 people living on the island, including the Indians, so that from 1494 to 1508, over three million people had perished from war, slavery, and the mines. He asked, who in future generations will believe this? I myself, writing as a knowledgeable eyewitness can hardly believe it Today most Americans reject the truth of Columbus they prefer the fairy tale version the discovered America version Italian Americans prop him up as their patron saint falsely associating him with their own Italian heritage His name is celebrated with holidays in parades as a name for cities towns and regions including a province in Canada the US capital and a country of South America So what of Las Costas' question. Who in future generations will believe this? Will the truth prevail? Or will the myth of a fabricated hero continue?
6: The historical truth about Columbus is that he was an absolutely horrible human being. He was a cruel murderer, a greedy slave trader who also dabbled in capturing children to be sex slaves in Europe, all of which was to fatten his own estate. He was so greedy, in fact, he was removed from the government's role of governor in the Caribbean. All of you folks who buy a DNA test and are surprised to find that you have traces of Native American ancestry, yeah, that's not a happy story. Your ancestors brought that back to the Americas from Europe in their veins, and the way they got it is a very ugly narrative. Last month, President Trump gave a speech in which he was literally demanding that schools become propaganda centers, teaching the next generation to be more proud of being American by downplaying their knowledge of actual American history. He even specifically named the work of the famous American historian Howard Zinn as being an author who should be removed from school libraries and not discussed in classrooms. I don't know who wrote that speech for Donald Trump, but I'm willing to bet that he had no idea who Howard Zinn was. But someone put him in there. I'm confident that Trump's never read any of his books because it seems relatively apparent that he hasn't read any books at all. It was, however, my honor to meet and talk with Howard Zinn on three occasions, the first two times actually here in Springfield, once at Missouri State University and then Our school of religion at Drury University had him come and speak there, and then later I got to have a longer visit with him when he was speaking at Harvard when I was a fellow there in 2004. He was a very amazing man, so insightful, and his ability to just strip away all the propaganda and myth from the stories that we've told ourselves about our history, it was just so amazing. That when we started this church in 2008, our very first class was led by our own Dr. David Adams, who spent nearly a year guiding us through a study of Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States, because I wanted our church to be started with a fierce orientation to our true history and the things that the cultural prejudices that we were inheriting. Trump doesn't really know much about history, and he cares even less. But he doesn't want you to know that Christopher Columbus was a murdering slave trader who got rich by abducting children for the sex trade. Still, the problem here is not just that Columbus was historically a bad guy. There are lots of bad guys in history, and there are a lot of dark chapters in our history of conquest, invasion, and frankly, pathological land theft, on our way to declaring ourselves to be the greatest nation in the world. The problem is that Italians picked Columbus to be the central figure in a useful myth. Myths can be based on facts. A lot of times they're based on thin air, but myths have a function in society. They put a certain spin on history to give us self-confidence and pride, and to justify our sense of privilege. In this sense, the Hebrew Bible is the perfect example of the use of myth as propaganda. The stories that were recorded by the Israelites who were captive in Babylon in the 5th century B.C., describing their history from five, six, seven years earlier, as being a rather testy love story between their nation and God, their story claims that they grew as a nation while they were slaves in Egypt and that God delivered them from slavery and gave them their own land, a promised land. There is no persuasive reason to believe that any part of that myth is based on anything that happened in history. The Jews were one of many Palestinian tribes fighting for control of real estate that just happened to be located between two great continents where empires have been fighting since humans laid down their clubs and started to build walled cities. I never cease to be amused by evangelicals who have never noticed how ironic it is that the Jewish holy book, written by Jews, for Jews, is the book where they find the claim that God gave them this particular piece of real estate. What could be more convenient? I took an Israeli government subsidized trip to Jordan and Israel when I was in grad school. I was pretty out of place even then in a bus full of evangelical preachers, but I was excited to see what even I at that tender young age thought of as the Holy Land, but as we crossed the Jordan River and saw the impoverished refugee camps in the West Bank brimming with displaced Palestinians, our government guide shrugged off the obvious poverty and suffering of the camp and said to us, they don't belong here. God gave this land to us. And the bus erupted in loud amens from all the preachers on the bus, and the tour guide had this wry grin on his face as he had obviously practiced that line and perfected playing American preachers like a fiddle. It was at that moment that I began to question the validity of what I had been told about the promised land. Folks, let me break it to you. God doesn't wear a gold jacket and doesn't work for century 21. God no more parcels out land to one rival group over another than God prefers one football team or one baseball team over another. Apparently, I have it on good sources, that God is actually a ice hockey fan. Religious myths and national myths help to gloss over some of the sordid details of reality. We want to think of George Washington as a courageous military leader who helped American colonists to gain their freedom. We don't want to then dwell on the hundreds of slaves that he kept mercilessly captive on his farm or those that he brought to Washington to serve in his household. While some myths just evolve in the self-congratulatory stew of society, many are intentionally created to promote and justify the abuses of the dominant culture. None other than Rudyard Kipling, I mean, I kind of hate to think that he turned his hand to this, but Rudyard Kipling wrote a famous poem titled The White Man's Burden, and it was written to support our invasion of the Philippines suggesting that white people in North America were obligated to carry blacks, Latinos, and Native Americans towards civilization, and that we were now obligated to do the same for Philippine natives, Muslims, and Asians. As if our enslavement of Africans our genocide of Native Americans and abusive labor practices towards Latinos was all a charitable education exercise on the part of white America. It's similar to the passionate support for America's manifest destiny that's portrayed in John Gass' late 19th century painting depicting the spirit of a sort of Italian-looking woman named Columbia, flying through the air, Columbia obviously playing on Columbus, and she is guiding the westward movement of white people who beneath her are building railroads as she is stringing telegraph wire as they drove the Native Americans out of their way. She carries a textbook under her arm as if education was the hallmark of our conquest of lands that, you just have to admit, did not belong to us the assumption was that our superior culture our education our agriculture our technological advances justified the genocide and homicidal land theft we engaged in
0: Everyone knows the basic idea that in order to be a well-rounded news consumer, we should be reading and listening to a variety of media sources. The problem is about how to actually make that happen. I mean, are you supposed to trust a news aggregator that chooses which sources to present to you for each story? Are you supposed to open up a dozen tabs with all different news sources? If you can't afford to install a wall of TVs all set to different channels in front of a conference table where you can lay out newspapers from around the world like a media mogul, try Ground News. Ground News is the first news comparison app that gives you instant access to the entire spectrum of news sources for every news story. So don't just read one headline when you can read a dozen headlines all describing the same story and then choose which versions to read in full, I've completely ditched my old news app, and think you will too. Try all of their features for free, and you will be hooked. Then, to use all the features of the app with no limits and receive their weekly blind spot newsletter, you're going to want to sign up for Ground News Premium. Just head to ground.news/best. And since Ground News is a subscription service, that means that you really are the customer and the news really is the product, rather than you being the product being sold to advertisers. As an exclusive limited-time offer, you can sign up today and get seven days free of their premium service, and listeners of Best of Left will also get an extra 25% off their membership that's less than $2 a month billed yearly. So what are you waiting for? That's ground.news slash best, ground.news best.
7: Everything that you need to know about on Columbus Day, you should be thinking about on Thanksgiving as well. And it's really a better opportunity because you're there with your family and you can discuss the history of the last 500 years with them.
3: Right. You're not playing a game where you run into people's houses and kill them and take their stuff, which is the right way to celebrate Columbus Day. Yeah.
7: The reason I say that is that the central fact of essentially all politics on Earth is the history of European colonialism over the past 500 years. The incredible thing about it is that that is never discussed. And in fact, I would say it's precisely because it is the central fact. That is it's never discussed. Uh, you know, I talked about a phenomenon that anthropologists call social silence, which is exactly that, which says that the way human cultures work is that in terms of what we focus on and we'll discuss, you know, it's like looking at the sun. Like the sun is the central fact of life on Earth. But we never look at the sun. We never look at European colonialism. And the fact that starting in 1492, Europeans conquered, like, I think, like 85% of the landmass on earth the only place on earth that really escaped being colonized was japan and that is a significant fact why was japan the first country to catch up to european and american economic standards and have what we would consider a modern economy where people were prosperous well the only place where that happened immediately was japan And those things are probably connected. And so, European colonialism was unquestionably, nobody would deny, could deny, was the driving force until World War II and what was called decolonization after World War II, which was real in some senses. but. The after effects and what Pope Francis has called like new forms of colonialism mm. in another guise mean that European colonialism in many ways has just never ended, and you cannot understand life on Earth unless you understand that. And I went through a whole bunch of different things that seem totally unconnected, but if you understand that European colonialism is what matters, <laughs> they fit together very well. I can talk about some of my yeah, favorites. There are too many. There are a lot count. of them. Right. <laughs> Okay, so you take the money out of your wallet. Nobody knows for sure where the dollar sign came from. But there is a lot of speculation that makes sense that it comes from the city seal of Potosi in Bolivia. The only reason I know about the history there is weird happenstance. My grandfather was a historian of Spanish and Portuguese colonialism. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he actually is an honorary citizen
3: there. Whoa. He
7: wrote a history of the city.
3: That's so cool.
7: Yeah, it is really interesting. And the history is this is that there's a gigantic mountain outside the city. The city grew up around it. It had maybe the world's greatest deposits of silver. Over a period of hundreds of years, it's estimated that 10 million people were worked to death in the mines. This would be indigenous Bolivians, Mm -hmm. also Africans, Mm -hmm. were enslaved and sent to Bolivia. That's why it was called the Mountain That Eats Men. Mm. On the city seal, you can see actually two things that look very much like a dollar sign. At the time of the U.S. Revolution and in the decades afterwards, just everybody knew that this is where wealth came from. It was a topic of discussion, and and these coins would have circulated in the United States. And so it's quite possible that that's where the dollar sign comes Mm. from. This example of sort of the essence of European colonialism, which is that for some people, this mountain meant gigantic amounts of wealth, like all of this money flowed out of the mountain to the Spanish government. And it's why their gigantic, beautiful buildings uh, in Spain, in Madrid, were built 400 years ago. And then for people on the other side of colonialism, it meant mass death. Right. And essential slavery and being condemned to live underground and live and die in the darkness. So,
3: yeah. There's no better metaphor for capitalism than mining.
7: Yeah. And we carry that around with us every day on our money. Mm. But nobody knows that. And so we don't see it. Right. But it is right there. It's right there in our pockets. That's one example. You see it in our culture. But people are completely blind to it. War of the Worlds, Avatar, Apocalypse Now, uh, Day of the Jackal—those are all movies that are either metaphorically or literally about European colonialism. But nobody knows that. Nobody knows that about Avatar. Mm. Uh, that that's that really is how it was conceived. Nobody knows that about World War of the Worlds. Like they see the remake with Tom Cruise directed, I think, by Steven Spielberg. Like that was never discussed when the movie came out. That H. G. E. Wells wrote that very right. specifically as an allegory about colonialism. If you are living. It's sort of the world capitals of colonialism. It's like, well, what's you know, what's the big deal? Like, why was was colonialism really that bad? Well, it was that bad. It was an ideology as brutal, as cruel as fascism, as Nazism, uh, as Stalinism at its worst. In fact, there's a very good argument to be made that fascism grew out of colonialism. Mm. Yeah, my grandfather wrote about that. My historian grandfather. Wow. Wrote at the time, this is growing out of colonialism and the sort of extremely powerful ideology of racism that colonialism created, fascism adopted.
0: As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of the Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right. There's nothing additional you need to do and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support.
8: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism: voting is not enough. Fight voter suppression and help restore native voting rights. As of the publishing of this episode, there are only 3 weeks left until election day, just 21 days. Visit bestoftheleft.com/2020action to explore our 2020 election action guide, which we're calling Voting is Not Enough because it's just not. Voting is happening now in record numbers, but at the same time, we're also witnessing desperate attempts by the GOP to suppress votes in any way they can, legally and illegally. We need to counter these voter suppression efforts with action. So if you haven't volunteered yet, what are you waiting for? Help voters in voter ID law states get the IDs they need with VoteRiders.org. Phone bank and text bank with a get-out-the-vote campaign and arm voters with the accurate information they need to ensure their vote is cast and counted. Go to thelastweekends.org to instantly find a shift for the final weekends before the election. And if you or someone you know encounters a problem with ballot drop boxes, early voting, absentee ballots, or something else, call Election Protection at 866-OUR-VOTE or visit 866 hourvoteorg If you want to help, sign up to assist with Election Protection's nonpartisan poll monitoring program at protectthevote.net. It's important to note that Native peoples have not only been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus, but they are also disproportionately affected by voter suppression tactics. In fact, many barriers to the ballot uniquely target Native peoples. Native peoples are less likely to have a traditional street address, making it more likely that their voter registration applications will get rejected, and many states with voter ID laws just flat out don't accept tribal IDs. Then there's the closure of polling places and reducing ballot drop boxes in reservation counties, conflicting information from poll workers and lack of interpreters in states with high Native populations. The gunning of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 only made targeted voter suppression of Native peoples easier for states like Arizona and Alaska and certain counties in North Dakota. To help counter the suppression, nonprofits Illuminative, Native Organizers Alliance, and First Peoples Worldwide have launched Natives Vote, a get-out-the-vote effort providing detailed information on each state's voting laws, registration dates, and who to contact if issues arise, and more. In a release, Illuminative Executive Director Crystal Echo Hawk said, quote, Exercising our grassroots political power is crucial to rebuilding what we've lost and preparing the future for the next seven generations, end quote. Visit NativesVote2020.com to learn more. You can also help restore and protect Native voting rights by demanding your members of Congress support the Native American Voting Rights Act, which has already been introduced in both the House and Senate. Spearheaded by the Native American Rights Fund, the act would create more communication channels between Washington and Native American tribes, direct states to accept tribal ID cards for voting purposes, and establish a clear pathway for Native communities to request federal election observers. The segment notes include all the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and once again, this segment is available on the Voting Is Not Enough page at bestoftheleft.com 2020 action. So if making sure everyone can access the ballot, especially those we stole this land from, is important to you, be sure to spread the word about fighting voter suppression and helping restore native voting rights so that others in your network can spread the word too.
5: Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses, or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong, putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong? Because it's time to make a difference in this fickle world of change.
3: Before the break, we were hearing from historian Mark Peterson about the true origins of the phrase, city upon a hill, It's one of the catchphrases of American exceptionalism. He he was telling me that its author, Puritan John Winthrop, intended it not as prophecy, but rather as a sort of warning to his fellow colonists that the eyes of the world were upon them. But the second interesting thing Peterson told me was that the text doesn't show up at all in the historical record until 200 years later. That's when a handwritten copy of it was found in a New York City attic.
4: This particular copy was discovered in the early 19th century, in the early 1830s, among a collection of papers that belonged to one of John Winthrop's very distant descendants. In 1838, this document was published for the first time by the Massachusetts Historical Society in their ongoing series of publications of important documents in Massachusetts history.
3: So why should... uh... The Massachusetts Historical Society and uh, readers of this document think it was so prescient and prophetic. What was it about the 1830s that shaped the reception of this document?
4: Well, this is a time in which there is a great deal of attention being paid in the United States to its earlier history, uh, largely driven by the growing sectional conflict between the northern and the southern states at the time. Mm. And of course, by the 1830s, with the rise of abolitionism in Boston, the publication of William Lloyd Garrison's famous abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, the beginnings of major slave revolts in the South, like Nat Turner's rebellion in Virginia, these issues are becoming more and more inflamed. And there's, as the two sides differentiate themselves from each other in political and intellectual terms, there's a kind of contest to seize the mantle of history, to prove that one side versus uh, the other down
3: Mark, Mark, Mark. Yes. This is the great statement of American exceptionalism now, and modern American presidents uh, invoke it all the time. Yes. And you're telling me it really comes out of a Yankee nationalism- That is, America is New England writ large.
4: That's exactly right. And in fact, in the 19th century, after Winthrop's uh, text comes to light, it's not something that's embraced by Southern Americans, Mm. by the future Confederacy. Rather, it's part of the kind of historical mythology that New Englanders build around themselves. It's of a piece with the development of Thanksgiving as first a a, a regional and then eventually a national holiday. But of course – As I I assume your listeners will know, Thanksgiving is not a national holiday until President Lincoln declares it to be one in the midst of the Civil War in 1863. Before that, it had been pretty exclusively a New England regional celebration.
3: When do you think that that phrase became a patriotic, nationalistic text that it is today? Was that in the 19th century, or is it only in the 20th century that it begins to take on that powerful meaning?
4: Well, as far as I can tell, it really is a, a 20th century phenomenon. And part of the reason for that is that despite many of the efforts of 19th century, you know, sort of patriotic New England historians to promote the idea of a, a, a kind of uh, American origins in the founding of uh, Massachusetts, there was a kind of equal and opposite Fear of and loathing of and detestation of Puritanism. And so a lot of the scholarship of the 19th century tended to suggest that uh, a lot of what more sort of progressive or liberal people thought – was wrong with the American character could be traced to the sort of meanness and uh, anti-life qualities if that's a a phrase of of Puritanism and so I I think it was really with the scholarly recovery of the complexity and richness of Puritanism in the 20th century that many of these texts like Winthrop's came to the forefront and so on this particular case, The City Upon a Hill phrase I actually uh, would have to pin the blame on Perry Miller, the great Harvard. Literary oh, my scholar.
3: goodness, one of our great historians, literary scholar, yeah.
4: Right, but as brilliant as Miller was, this particular phrase he treated rather sloppily. And mm-hmm. uh, in an extremely influential and well-known essay that he wrote called Errand into the Wilderness, he actually suggested that John Winthrop, in using that phrase, city upon a hill... He was quite literally suggesting that Winthrop was being prophetic. He said something like, here John Winthrop had a preternatural sense of the future greatness of America. He was wrong. He was not doing his homework on this particular text as well as he should have. But it is the case that Miller was the predominant intellectual figure interpreting American history and culture at the time that John Kennedy was a Harvard undergraduate. And so I'm not particularly surprised that Kennedy gave a famous speech in Massachusetts to his supporters in which he invoked that phrase in much the way that Perry Miller had used it.
9: But I have been guided by the standard John Winthrop set before his shipmates on the flagship Arabella 331 years ago.
4: And I think once, you know, Kennedy did it and it worked its way from there into uh, politics, the media, journalists and the like, there was no turning back from that.
9: That we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us.
10: The idea of American exceptionalism is as old as the European founding or European landing in America. John Winthrop, in his sermon aboard the Arbella, before the pilgrims departed, before the Puritans departed from the ship, said that we shall be as a city upon the hill, that the eyes of the world will be upon us, that their colony, Massachusetts Bay Colony, 1630, would set the moral example for all the backward Christians in England, especially, and that if they followed America's model, because we were going to set up this model Christian community. And so from the very beginning, there's this notion that the world is going to look to what's set up here in America as the model for everybody else to follow if they want true redemption. But then the notion evolves. It really is with the American Revolution in 17, seven, starting in 1775, the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776, uh, the, the victory in the Revolutionary War. There's this celebration of July 4th and this developing notion of the United States being an extraordinary, a different kind of country. We see this in, again in the 1830s and 1840s. It was expressed by some of the European visitors like Alexis de Tocqueville, but also many other Europeans who came to the United States during that time. talked about They didn't talk about American exceptionalism, but they talked about the United States being exceptional, and they talked about the ways in which the United States was different. We've got positive expressions of this, In the statements made by Abraham Lincoln, for example, in the Gettysburg Address, he talks about America as a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And he says that America's mission is to ensure that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. So while, as you mentioned in the introduction, it's often used, the concept of American exceptionalism, to say that America is above other countries in a way that allows the United States to act as a rogue power. That's not the only version that there's been. There's also been positive visions of the United States as a beacon of democracy and a beacon of freedom. The interesting twist that occurs is really later, the first real use of the term American exceptionalism is by none other than Joseph Stalin. And uh, this was in the late 1920s when there was factional fighting within the American Communist Party. And the J. Lovestone faction argued that the United States is different from the rest of the world, whereas Marx's laws applied to the rest of the world Uh, the working class in the United States was not revolutionary. Capitalism was not about to collapse in the United States. And so the kind of third period rhetoric that we see in the communist movement internationally that was embraced by Joseph Stalin was denied by the leaders of the American Communist Party, and Stalin denounced them for embracing American exceptionalism. And then with the advent of the Great Depression... Stalin was effectively proved right, at least with the contours of that debate at that point. But then the notion of American exceptionalism reemerges after World War II. And then it's, it's picked up by historians, sociologists, American studies scholars, and they're trying to figure out what makes the United States different. And what they point to is America's lack of a feudal tradition. It really gets back to the question the Sumbart question, Verna Sumbart question, why no socialism in the United States? Why when the Europeans have great labor parties, great socialist parties, great communist parties, that wasn't the case in the United States. So people started to look at America's traditions. One of the answers to that was provided in 1893 by Frederick Jackson Turner, a leading historian Of the day, and Turner points to America's frontiers. It's called the Frontier Thesis, and Turner says what makes the United States unique is that we have this frontier tradition. And uh, Turner argues that America's great democratic values were honed on the frontier. That that pioneering spirit that made America different. His concern was that, according to the 1890 census, the frontier had closed. So the question was, where are the new frontiers going to come from? That's part of the thinking that uh, guides the United States to become an empire in the more t- traditional sense with the Spanish-American War and the repression of the Filipinos in 1898, 1899, and the next few years. So the history is somewhat convoluted, as you can see. But after World War Two, it gets tied in to the discussion of the Cold War and to U.S. policy in the Cold War. And it becomes an ideological element that undergirds the U.S. position in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. So it's tied to now free markets. It's tied to social mobility. It's tied to certain freedoms And the way that that evolves is that increasingly the idea of American exceptionalism is the idea that the United States is different from all other countries. While all other countries are motivated by a desire for power, by economic greed, by territorial aggrandizement, the United States is unique because the United States is motivated by the desire to spread freedom and democracy around the world, that the Americans are the only ones who are not motivated by what the rest of the world is motivated by. We only want to make the world better, and that makes the United States unique. It's in many ways, I mean, it's a wonderful notion. If it were true, the problem is, much too often, it's just the opposite, that we're in bed with the most, the worst elements, that we were supporting militaristic policies, Samuel Huntington, who in many ways was an advocate of American exceptionalism, did have make the insightful comment, he said, the West won the world not by the superiority of its ideas or values or religion, but by the superiority of organized violence, the application of organized violence. Westerners often forget that fact. Non-Westerners never do.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with the Native Opinion podcast, listing five ideas to keep in mind each time the annual celebration of Christopher Columbus comes around. Vox did an explainer on why we started celebrating Columbus Day. Let's Talk Native told a bit of the history of Columbus through his own words. We heard Dr. Roger Ray from his latest Progressive Faith sermon about how the myths we tell ourselves shape the society we become. The Katie Helper Show spoke with John Schwartz about the centrality of colonialism in the world we live in today. Backstory corrected the origin story of America as a city on a hill. Loud and Clear explored the idea of American exceptionalism and the realities that that phrase tends to help hide. All of that was available to everyone, but members also heard some bonus content that everyone else missed out on. We heard another clip from Let's Talk Native explaining the irony of the idea that if a person doesn't like America, then they should just leave, it being a fact that America is full of white people of European descent for having done exactly that in their countries of origin. And finally, some more news from Cracked explained why the right is so disingenuous about history rather than just accepting. Accepting the facts and responding accordingly. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes, and they're part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you.
9: Hi, Jay. And hi, Craig from Ohio. It's Dave from Olympia. Just listened to the Bernie Sanders episode, and I loved Craig's thoughts about the collectivist idea, the myth, myth-building around the what he called the progressive myth of working together for all of us. And I have Although there are myths around that, that's just the fact. That's just reality. And this has echoes of what Tim Wise had to say at the end of the episode, but that's just true. That's what makes us human, is working together. I mean, from an evolutionary standpoint, we're terrible animals. We're slow, we have no like protection even from the elements, we've got no hair, our claws are for crap, our are, teeth aren't sharp. We figured out this walking upright thing, but that only gets you so far. Our one thing, our one thing is being able to work together as a group to, you know, ensure survival of the species. We would be, you know, an evolutionary dead end if it weren't for our ability to work together. This delusion of the rugged individual of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps isn't true. I mean, it's clearly not true. The rugged individual surviving on their own without society, I mean, is dead. They just die. Those people don't survive without the society to support them. So that's just the fact But the myth that holds up that delusion has a lot of cultural touchstones. You know, the idea of the self-made man, the rugged individual, like, so you just say those words and they resonate with many Americans. They have meaning beyond meaning. And so, a myth that supports that fact, that progressive fact that we work together for the betterment of everyone, are things like the biblical story of Cain and Abel. You know, are you your brother's keeper? Yes. <laughs> yes, you are, is the point of that story. And the fact that we've forgotten the point of that story and replaced it with another myth I guess just tells you that myths can be rewritten and rebuilt and that we can reconstruct the myth that our country resonates with so good thoughts enjoy the conversation again, thank you Craig and thank you Jay we'll you, stay awesome
11: Hey Jay, it's Craig from Ohio, and I thought I would call to follow up on my last call and on your pointing out that conservatives seem to uh, have a greater focus on foreign affairs, foreign policy than those of us on the left do. And I, I'm sure that's in general true. I uh, follow a wide array of sources on the left side of the spectrum, and. It is true. There's definitely a heavy influence on domestic affairs, domestic politics. But I want, there was one area that I thought really stood out that doesn't fit into that frame. And it has to do with, uh, well, let me tell you how I first thought about this. And then I'll get to uh, what it is I'm referring to. Um, a good friend of mine is a Republican. I've been friends with him for a long time before he was a Republican, but nowadays he's sort of my sounding board for what conservatives are thinking. And one area that he has a huge blind spot on is climate change. So whenever we have conversations about politics or whatever, I'll at some point say, "Well, what about this, you know, latest news in what's happening with the changing global climate?" And he really is clueless about it. I mean, he hasn't heard about the latest study. He hasn't heard about the latest storm that's hit Asia or Africa or a drought or the fires in Siberia. Um, just clueless. And I'm sure it's in part because he doesn't, his news, his sources don't emphasize that. Well, someone like me who, who does follow climate news pretty voraciously whenever I can hear uh, anything about it, I often hear of these uh, tragedies that are occurring all around the globe. So that's a kind of foreign affairs and foreign policy that informs my own outlook, and I'm sure yours and a lot of your audience. and it makes me motivated to think of the world as one unified global community that is facing this massive threat. So, I think I just I wanted to get to that point that climate change is the area of foreign policy, foreign affairs, that those of us on the left are focused on, and that there's a huge blind spot for people on the right who just seem uh, completely clueless about the actual state of the global habitat. I think that also informs yours and Nate's discussion of uh, myths and and the myths that. Uh, we that can inform where we go from here to me there are two competing myths that are also going to be playing out in this this uh, world of climate threat and i said the last time that the myth i prefer is the myth of progressivism and i think the word that describes that even better is solidarity and on the other side we have the mythology of division, factionalism, racism, nationalism, xenophobia, those are the two competing myths that I see that are playing out. I'm very concerned, very terrified that the progressive solidarity myth could lose to the far right wing fascist myth. And I think climate change is going to cause one of those two myths to eventually prevail. So Anyways, that's quite a bit. I will talk to you later. Bye. Hey, it's Larry in
9: Minnesota. I didn't understand your blind spot segment very well when you said the first question about conservatives not understanding there are kids in cages. My thought was that they do understand and they're okay with it. So I'm not sure if that's a blind spot or not thanks for your show bye
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voiced mails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 2022. Two nine 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 three nine nine one, or write me a message at J at bestofleft.com. So let me respond to these voicemails in reverse order, starting with the last from Larry, who was responding to our new check your blind spot segment. And the first tiny correction I will make, which is sort of a pivotal one, is that I, I think he's responding to a comment, Amanda our contestant on the show, made, and I will refute that she said that conservatives don't understand kids being in cages. What she said was that conservatives like to ignore kids being in cages.
8: This is definitely in the right's blind spot. They seem to like to ignore children being kept in cages.
0: And now to explain more fully the premise of this game, which It's a new segment, we're working out the bugs, maybe we didn't explain it as well as we could, and and maybe I'll explain it better in in future instances, but the premise of that game is that that we're using the Ground News aggregator app that's an advertiser for the show, and I'm talking about them now, but they're not paying me to talk about them now. So we, we use the Ground News aggregator app, which has a function called the Blind Spot that actually displays not metaphorical, not hypothetical real world media comparison. So the the quiz with the blind spot uh, game show is based on real world media sources actually talking about real news events and the story that that question was a part of was about Jeff Sessions and others in the administration being at the forefront of pushing, The child separation policy regarding our our immigration policy and the literal fact was that right wing news organizations were not covering that story. So that is by definition in their blind spot. That's why it's so important to clarify that it's not that they don't understand. If they have heard about it, then I agree with Larry. They heard vaguely a long time ago that that was happening, but they maybe were convinced by the idea that, well, you know, it's it's a deterrence idea, and so maybe that's what we should be doing. That may very well be the case for many people, but for that story in particular, a follow-up on that story about the administration pushing for that specifically when they later denied that they had, that story is being told in the sort of mainstream and left-leaning media and is not being covered in right-wing media. That's why we say it's in their blind spot. It's not hypothetical. It's not theoretical. It is literal. If you only read right-wing news, you will not have seen that story because they didn't cover it. And now on to Craig, I would say in response to Craig's thoughts on climate change being in the blind spot of many conservatives, you are 100% on point. That is actually maybe the number one issue that you can point to that really, really consistently falls in the blind spot of right-wing media outlets. They do not cover it, and so people who only follow right-wing media do not know anything about climate change. And, I mean, you can say it's their fault for not expanding their media horizons, and I'd certainly agree with that. But if they think, look, I'm I'm following all these right-wing news stories uh, and news outlets, so I should be getting a whole variety of stories, sort of a range of perspectives and Because I would kind of make that argument with Best of the Left. I say, like, look, I I listen to dozens of different left-wing sites, and we cover a whole variety of news stories, and we get all these different perspectives all from the left. But, obviously, the left is going to have its blind spots. Craig was referring, I think, to a conversation we were having just with the members about how one of the blind spots that the left has is foreign policy. We just don't talk about it that much. We really focus a lot more on domestic policy, social issues, human rights issues, things like healthcare and and, uh, you know, racial justice and all of those sorts of things. We really do focus more on that. And my argument is that, or, or my theory, is that as anti-imperialist leftists— we don't pay that much attention to international news because we don't see it as something that we want to take action on. As anti-imperialists, we think that's their business. We don't want to get involved, whereas the right wing, as pro-imperialists, I would argue, see international news as chess moves happening that America may want to get involved in, what's happening across the world that we may need to influence, what's happening that we may need to take action on to secure our interests around the world. If you're in an imperialist mindset, then the whole world becomes your domestic policy domain. The whole world is relevant to the United States because we need to have our fingers in everyone else's pies. If you're on the left and you just don't think that, we tend to not follow that international news. But the reason why we follow climate news, not because it's international and we therefore, in this one instance, have an interest in international stories because they're international. We have an interest in climate change because they align with our social justice perspective And sort of ironically, our social justice perspective and focus is why we focus so much domestically. It's the refutation to that old idea, you know, that the ridiculous counter argument that'll come from the right. Saying that people in America, you know, if you're a woman or, you know, gay, that you shouldn't be complaining because you at least live in America. I mean, we may be discriminating against you, but at least we're not stoning you to death in our public squares, right? That's sort of their example about why people who are oppressed in America should shut up because you're not as oppressed as people in other countries might be. And the response to that is... Yeah, well, we're going to focus on our domestic policy and trying to perfect our social justice initiatives in our country because this is where we have the most influence. We may not have the influence necessary to prevent public stonings across the world, but we do have the influence in our country to relieve oppressed people from the bias and discrimination that they experience in our country, even if it's less of an oppression than elsewhere. And so it's our social justice perspective and focus that makes us care about climate change. And because climate change is international, we then naturally gravitate to climate change stories that are international and will follow stories about how other countries are being impacted by climate change. Even though we would completely ignore political stories happening across the world, regime changes or, you know, the the domestic policies happening across the world that the left just doesn't see as our realm to care about or be involved with, maybe to care about, I mean, I, I guess if a policy is happening somewhere around the world, And there's a human rights violation, that is exactly the kind of story the left will pay attention to. I mean, if you've heard anything about China in the last couple of years, it's probably been about the Uyghurs, am I right? Either that or the protests in Hong Kong. Once again, the stories that align with a social justice narrative are exactly the kinds of stories that the left will pay attention to, whereas the right may pay more attention to the sort of geopolitical chess game. That's happening and moves that China is making to strike international trade deals with Europe, or things that China is doing that Americans would generally see as bad, that the, the right wing would want to highlight in order to, you know, demonize China. I mean, maybe justifiably in, in many cases, but to highlight the negatives about China to rile up anti-Chinese sentiment in the US. That is exactly what is gonna happen in right-wing media, and not at all happen, or, or, or very little will happen in left-wing media, but when it intersects with the things we really do care about, social justice and whatnot, then that's when we get those international stories. So nothing Craig said was wrong. I, I certainly wasn't correcting or rebutting, just sort of expanding on that idea of, of why climate change would be one of the few international uh, stories that the left picks up on. As for why the right wing doesn't pay attention to climate change, I think that's pretty obvious. As always, keep the comments coming in at either 202 3991 or by emailing me at j at com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, especially by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and facebook to help others find the show for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com